We have with us today, Jamie Scholl of Resilience. She has been involved in uh, urban agriculture, advocacy for food policy uh, for, for many years. She's had her uh, fingers in a lot of different things in different cities, but has shaped a lot in Bloomington. She was a board member of Bloomington Community Orchard and helped found the uh, Food Policy Council. She has coaching certifications in strategic intervention, nutrition, and health and well being. And she's going to discuss with us today her uh, new business that she's formed to help facilitate and promote local urban agriculture as a, as a means to uh, beauty, peace, and health. We're going to talk about her sustainable practices and her uh, activities in shaping things like the Universal Develop Ordinance, Development Ordinance some years ago. She did an urban agriculture amendment on there. Um, I know that uh, some of your entry in, into the areas of plants and health, food as medicine and things, has had to do with your own personal uh, health journey. You said you were pre-diabetic and had uh, hypothyroid problems and that you've overcome them with uh, sort of food solutions. Can you uh, tell us about some of these health benefits of these things that you're growing and what you're trying to facilitate in doing your permaculture garden consultancy? Sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me on and the invitation to come on and talk about these things. My family has, a, on one side of the family, predisposition, genetic predisposition for uh, diabetes. So having studied that in part of the bioanth class at IU, I got to learn the mechanisms on how that functions. I'm thinking of little light switches on and off to do with um, lifestyle. So whenever I found that I was like that, outwardly, I didn't look as though I didn't have any of the other criteria, although I was having um, some health issues about that. And I'll tie that into a little bit later. So I overcome, like we often don't know we have a sugar addiction. I have to say that was one of the hardest things I ever did was trying to take out all sugars and really modify carbs. So, so difficult. With the thyroid issue, my sister had, that's on the other side of the family, my sister had said, why don't you check this out? I've, I have uh, Hashimoto's and uh, had just been diagnosed. So I went ahead and talked to my doctor. He's like, oh, you don't really have any pre-existing, you know, uh, indicators. So I persisted and they're like, well, let's go ahead and do this. Then they found that there was something was a little off, did a little bit more testing. And it's like, well, we want to put you on Synthroid. And I do not want to be one that's reliant on medications at any point. You know, some people do need that, not to say, you know, but for me, if I can figure something out, having had a background in working as support staff in a hospital and wellness center, like there's got to be something. So I did a lot of self-education in this and found that not only did I previously changed where I was no longer pre-diabetic and it had to do, most people don't realize this, stress. 
um, stress and getting better sleep, full night's sleep. But the stress really uh, had an effect on uh, the diabetes, you know, pre-diabetes. And then with the thyroid, at that time, we didn't have uh, things online. We, we had a lot of things online, but our medical records at that point were not online. So I had to really be an advocate for myself to get those mailed to me so I could actually see them rather than someone on the phone telling me that this, this number and this and this and this are all, are all within normal limits. Having done things like take my own body temperature throughout the day and know that it's runs lower than the average. That's the thing. This, these are averages. It doesn't fit everyone that I knew from that perspective and having worked with some doctors and medical professionals in the past, I wasn't intimidated by what they knew or didn't know. So I got that information and saw that my iodine level was within normal limits, but it was only one point within that normal limits, which might've been not normal for me. So I started looking at that, making other dietary changes and, you know, looking at the lifestyle again. And so would modify these different things. I did see a nutritionist push for that. Although she had never worked with anyone who was trying to prevent this only after someone had been on Synthroid. So she handed me a study that was about children and I was never a big dairy person. I went back on to dairy and then developed allergies. So even to this day, I cannot drink or eat anything made with cow's milk. Although sheep, goat, those are fine. And of course I do the other things, soy, oat, you know, other types of alternative milk products. Do you have a couple of gardens going on? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a number of gardens right now and I sell plants and doing research into certain plants with um, specific health benefits. Is yeah. that like a, you have a food forest going on or is that in the works? In my own property, I do have a native food forest around a black walnut tree. So native food forests can include the black walnuts, persimmon, pawpaw, uh, black raspberry, and a number of other types of plants that a lot of people consider black walnuts not to be amenable to food producing. But if you choose your plants and, and look beyond the annuals, but uh, alliums grow fine around it. I think you can grow green beans, but I mostly stick with uh, perennials. And do you think the uh, Bloomington Community Orchard you help uh, start up has a uh... Uh, culminated well? Yeah, I was just there um, a few days ago and talked with some people who were there on July 4th. And um, yeah, it's, it's a great community project and uh, is a great learning, uh, a place for learning and connecting with others. These are things that are not uh, funded by pharmaceutical companies. These are called nutraceuticals. And because lycopene does not have that benefit in a capsule form, and it cannot be uh, really utilized in that way, unlike some other things, that the only way to get this benefit is from the actual food. 
So growing and processing locally, which I'll lead into the urban agriculture with us, is incredibly important. And these, uh, one of the tomatoes I'll probably have a lot to sell, uh, I'm hoping if all goes well, <clears throat> this summer is Moon Glow. Doesn't have the highest tetracyst lycopene value, but it does, it is a taste, uh, taste test winner. And it's, it's very tasty. Now for the urban agriculture and why it's, it's important to health and growing has a few components. And one of them is that given that these things are best utilized locally and fresh off the vine and do not travel well uh, in trucks or in production, they will not be um, grown by a large-scale grower. They, they can't be processed anyway for the tangerine tomatoes. And they're not going to be grown in the largest volumes because the, the plant does not produce that larger volume and it just doesn't ship as well. So this must be, this is a nutraceutical that must be grown locally, whether it's in someone's backyard in a five gallon bucket at a, at a local grower to get that health benefit that is not available anywhere else. So that is incredibly important when you're considering urban agriculture. Yes, beauty is important. Beauty is important to the aesthetic. It's important to our you know, psyche, our philosophy. We feel better um, even like in uh, negative spaces such as I'll use the term ghetto which they've seen, there are studies that show that gardens and green spaces help mental health. There is that. There's a physical health with getting your hands actually in the soil. That's also been studied and that's there. Um, but in regards to actually for the food production, those with the lowest, uh, you know, the challenges with positive health outcomes and not getting diseases, and having fresh foods are low income. Now, why we have a, a huge issue in this community with deer, they are eating things, and I've been growing here for a long time. They are eating things, not just in my yard, but in other locations that they have never eaten before. We have an overpopulation problem. And I like the deer. I have one doe that she grazes as I'm picking black raspberries. I'm just like, do not eat this, please. However, my income level at this point, especially of starting a business, is not high. And if I'm fencing them out, well, that's a, that's a cost. That's hitting low-income people who need this food the most. I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say the most. It is going to have the greatest benefit, likely, likely, with those populations who cannot fence out. And then when you fence that out, you're fencing out possibly all these other creatures in the wildlife. We have, you know, we have raccoons and possums, and I, I see them here, skunks. And we can integrate in that, or we can try to block all of that out. So it's not that I am a deer hater, obviously not. I've rescued them. I rescue many animals rabbits included, even though they like eating my lettuces and a number of other things. But we're out of balance. And that's part of 
well-being is being in balance. So our community is out of balance. And how do we get into balance? We are, you know, humans are part of the food chain. We're not just observing it. And not everyone will agree that we need, you know, I know there'd been discussions before and a whole task force, the DEER task force of addressing this issue. And it's like, no deer deer kills, no deer, deer kills. But then we're harming our citizens by not managing this. However it gets managed, that's how it would best be managed. Um, and my philosophies are more in line with uh, Native peoples. And, you know, if I can, and I have butchered things myself, say a prayer for that, thank the creature for, for giving its life, um, and be truly thankful, not just getting some hamburgers or whatever from the store and throwing them out as part of a celebration. This is part of sustainability. It's not just electricity. It's not just a grid. Amish live and other people, they choose to live without electricity. It's a different lifestyle, but we need water. We need food. We need shelter. So if we're looking just at the electrical grid and solar panels and such as uh, sustainability, we're really missing some of the basics and it needs to be caught up. And this is where the urban agriculture amendment to the unified development ordinance way back when was important. Has that uh, really been implemented or do you think there needs to be more institutional advancement of kind of ruralizing the city you know some of the earliest cities they had integrated the farming into the walls of the city it was kind of protection against siege and then there were some garden cities planned in the midwest kind of some of the things even before some of the sewer socialists and such who were doing infrastructure projects it's kind of populist projects and everything some people really seem dispositionally opposed to greening the city it's to be sterile and rectilinear and plants know their place they're apportioned into little spaces like little topiaries and things that's really different than creating a canopy where there's grazing it's another thing that kind of rubs people wrong the idea that there'd be free food hanging everywhere as you walk around when they think of them as trash trees that are dropping debris and things. I mean, there's a there's a mindset cultural thing there, and then there's an institutional component of fostering fostering that. And do you think that's happening enough? Well, you brought up a number of different things that could be unpacked for sure and are have been and are on my mind as well um is the city doing enough organization no absolutely not we could have these streets lined with different types of trees that provide food for people who's going to harvest it well that's something that could be looked at as well, this is a problem to be solved. This is an opportunity. Problems, if you look at this from a, um, a um, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial viewpoint, a problem is an opportunity. So if we're having this problem, 
we should look at it as an opportunity. It put in these trees. Oh my, the persimmons are dropping on here. This, uh, the pawpaws, the hazelnuts, the whatever it is we're going to have there. And sometimes they're already there as part of the natural environment. Why is there not possibly a nonprofit formed to take care of this? Why would the city not look at this as part of, uh, you know, an opportunity to have a department as a part of, I don't know, maybe parks? I am not, I don't know where it would be best fit. I really don't. But there are opportunities there that we could look at for that. Um, I understand some people want to live in the city versus in the country. And there are locations, as you mentioned, um, in this nation and in others that have that. And then others have pockets, as you'd mentioned, like a topiary. Um, even, uh, you know, Paris has that, because I've been to Paris and I've seen these locations and some in other areas in England. And that can fit in the denser cities to have the gardens and community gardens or allotments nearby so that people can um, go there for their mental health as well. But, you know, there's, it, it's a community decision. Now, how to zone this is something else. And we've looked at, you know, uh, the city council has looked at annexation. And one of the things with these kind of um, checkerboard areas uh, on the near nearer west side that people are saying, oh, we need to annex those. And those used to be farms. Why would we want to continually bring and truck in the local produce from an hour and a half away if we can just simply keep that as it is and encourage agriculture right there that could be, I remember seeing horse there. We could bring carton food on mini horses down to the city markets. Um, you know, depending upon where these locations are, because we, we may not want to think about one blanket solution for everything, but to zone something as part of the city and then say, we're going to increase your taxes when farmers are struggling now does not make sense. I mean, I... I know at one point in water and soil conservation, they have an or urban ag uh, person that came in with grants and she was not a, uh, allowed to help me living within the city limits, even though it's urban ag, because of at that time, I don't know if it's changed, there was no funding from the city for that person's position. So therefore she was not serving in town. So there's different things within um, city government itself and where our dollars are going and not. And I'm not sure how much of this has to do with the administration, whoever's going to be in office and who is in office now and where those decisions are made. That's kind of a blank to me, but, you know, there's different ways to approach this and to identify each specific issue. and to find solutions and really not think that it's a blanket solution for the entire area, but to 
see this as part of uh, sustainability. And I believe there's been some problems that people have had with, what is it, homeowners associations that oh, will wow. even kind of banish people for trying to garden in their yards or even kind of just come uh, in and bulldoze their stuff down and have all these regulations to completely discourage gardening as something that brings down the property value. Yeah, and this is where, uh, believe it or not, uh, aesthetics can come into play. Because a lot of people want to simply plant row crops in the front yard and to make a statement. Um, and to them, it's a moral imperative. And I understand that. I also understand from uh, the perspective of lowering property values because it can also do that. And there is an art project. Um, the artist came and spoke here and they would install these edible gardens in people's yards and then just leave them. And it would become an eyesore, eyesore may attract rats and mice and whatever else, which then did lower the property value for the others in the neighborhood. Um, so there's, if you're doing it from a more organized and uh, perspective rather than a wild perspective, such as kitchen gardens and the potager, those are designed. And rather than simply placing these crops there, it can be designed to be a permanent landscape feature, uh, just like any other landscaping that someone would do with rocks and trees and you know, your annuals, they're just going to be possibly producing food. There'll be flowers, herbs, all of these benefits. But that's where um, keeping the thought in aesthetics as important to uh, urban agriculture, it's often overlooked and or saying uh, that one person's aesthetic is not the same as another's. And so therefore we cannot touch this issue. Well, I think we need to touch the issue. And uh, I've heard of uh, community gardening programs, I think in Belgium, to where instead of like, okay, you get a plot in the park that you can rent, that mm -hmm. they actually set up gardens in people's yards, that that's their community garden problem or program is that they go and install, presumably maybe with some of these layering techniques from low to high mm -hmm. to to kind of make it look better as a garden room mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing um, and that, I guess that could be organizations or businesses or the city that would kind of facilitate that type of thing but of course that's based on owning the property and then you have the whole situation of people that are renting that are not allowed to garden or places that have been built with no design for even a back stoop or anything like that. And again, regulations against it for tenants that are renting. And so that's kind of why you need the parks type as, as some other node, hopefully not too far away from where these people live. And uh, I mean, are you running into that with your consultancy situation? So this is a good tie-in to what I didn't fully answer before with the aesthetics. And that is like with HOAs as well. 
HOAs are actually nonprofits. They normally have three board members and some of it's a boilerplate type of thing that often governs um, no food growing in the front yard or within so many feet. Um, this is not great for that. And I, I do know some, some folks who have opted to leave rather than litigate um, because some other things with trying to stop someone from growing food plants because there are or ornamentals that are edible as well, whether that's a cabbage or some things that are beautiful, cherry trees that we see in Washington, DC, espaliers are spectacular too. Um, so that's kind of the homeowners association. There are a lot of them. So when we look at um, homes, uh, property being owned where you could do this, that percentage, I did look it up at one point. And I don't remember how many, um, but it has grown in the city of people who could not be self-sufficient if, if they wanted to because of home, homeowner association rules. And if that were just rewritten for to include aesthetics instead of saying all food plants, then that could remedy that situation. Um, home uh, ownership versus rentals. So that that one um, that depends on the type of rental. We're seeing how uh, these large buildings are being uh, approved. Uh, come out of planning, the planning department, they get approved by city council, and then um, something changes along the way. But to see that these things may have been approved uh, with these items, such as for, you know, a certain percentage for families and for, um, for gardens to be there, uh, whether that's going to be used for mental health, for food growing, whether it's going to be in the soil itself or rooftop gardens, it's being removed outside of the public eye. When it, when it, so when looking at household and community food security, it's seeing that we can do succession planting and season extension and what things can be um, harvested from the ground or grown inside, uh, depending upon what someone's situation is, if they have a basement or not, mushrooms. I mean, looking at this holistically. And then there's the preservation part. But it, when looking at it all and how, what is it we are eating, are we mostly in our diets relying on... Um, uh, processed carbohydrates through bread and spaghetti and things like that, which I've eliminated pretty much from my diet unless I make those things myself. So I do a lot of uh, home cooking. Um, but even then it's difficult. How, how often do we have somebody that makes and grows local wheat that's not sprayed or why I would love to see what's going on at the Land Institute and some local farmers, someone in the county growing perennial wheat. And the Land Institute has been with West Jackson starting that, has been working on that and um, 
in that nonprofit. I think he's now retired, but the they're hoping to get that totally finalized. But it is available now. But then we have the pro processing. Do we have the processing facilities? You know, we don't have an abattoir for chickens and ducks and things like that for those who eat meat. Um, but do we have the combines? Those are that's really expensive equipment. And as a community, how much should be possibly owned locally to then? So there's this whole grander vision that you know things that I see and concern is that how how do we meet those needs based on what some people need in their diet? Because some people would be more reliant on that, and it's fine for their health. I'm not advocating that one way of eating and being is the same for everyone, and it's going to be beneficial because we need that kind of diversity. But without seeing the agricultural, um, you know, the food security and food sovereignty—that's another key thing—was seed saving. That we are then at um, at the vagaries of you know, the economic system, the, the food system we saw during COVID did not function well. Farmers couldn't get their foods to where they need to be. Well, because they were so far away from where the customer is, if we had, you know, more agriculture closer in urban agriculture or just those farms, that's not annexed, <laughs> you know, but right there with the city. That's something else. So all of these things would be wonderful to discuss at the community level because what fits one community may not fit another community. And the way things had been progressing when I was last uh, really active in urban agriculture and advocacy here in Bloomington um, has, has changed. So we no longer have that same unified development ordinance. There have been other questions in another document out there, which really doesn't uh, contain as much information and details and the research behind it, it seems, than was in the peak oil task force, um, task force report, which I believe is still on the city website. And that goes into the more of the details of what we would need to have. And from my perspective, it is still much more complete and holistic a view in that document for food than what we currently have. So I'd love to see us going back and reevaluating that and doing some updates on that to see where are we now? Because we had this information then, and I see that we have gone backwards from whenever I last was really involved. And that is incredibly concerning when we're looking at, you know, we could say climate change, but another friend of mine from years ago is like, well, we have a heating planet, but it's really climate instability. And that is what's really hitting with the changes in uh, heat, late frost. I mean, these are things that people may not know is that so when we don't when we have those late frosts we have for me this really hit because i was starting to sell uh this year um that it hits the fruit trees and they will not bloom but it has to do with microclimates as well so some people in other parts of the state that maybe an hour hour and a half drive away wouldn't have had this effect but here in bloomington did anyone see any mulberries you know, falling down on <laughs> on Washington Street this year. Uh, no, that meant that the 
the uh, cat birds and the cardinals, and they were eating the black raspberries, which meant less for human harvest, my harvest, preservation for the winter um, as well. So we see these environmental effects, but it's not just how it affects us directly of this temperature is on this with this climate instability, but how are we going to fluctuate with that, seeing how it affects the other creatures with whom we share this world. So do we need to plant more mulberry or uh, like a native mulberry, uh, black raspberry or other types of berries for in, in preparation for that time since we, we've had that a few times in the last three or four years? Because my harvest is, and you can't cover brambles unlike uh, blueberries. Um, so how, how are we going to manage that? So it may be more than just, hey, it's deer. Let's look at our wildlife completely. And how do we share this world with the other creatures, you know, in a good way? So it's benefiting all of us because we should all know by now that when things are out of balance, it's not good for anybody. And we're seeing these extinctions and close to getting close to extinctions in other parts of the world. How do we take care of those creatures here with us now? It's not just relegating them. In my perspective, it's not just relegating them to the other side of the fence and concreting everything. But how do we care for them? And how do we manage the situations? Because we're the ones with the big brains and we're the ones that's creating you know, all of these different issues in our environment. And if we really care for these creatures and love these creatures as we do ourselves, then we need to look at how do we care for them as we do ourselves. And as you mentioned, the institutional memory is kind of not being transmitted down as there are turnovers with appointed positions and boards and uh, commissions and things um, where new people are coming in and they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily picking up a thread of what was started 10 and more years ago. That discontinuity, um, I think, is a central problem to a cohesive vision actually taking hold rather than moments of inspiration and. Uh, you know, rousing each other into, aren't we doing something great on this or that project and not having an overarching, cohesive, integrated strategy in the, in the form of, you know, like emergency management or disaster preparedness with climate change as climate disaster, climate catastrophe. Some would say we don't even have a really good structure for disaster relief or momentary problems, let alone this ongoing shift in the way everything works mm -hmm. uh, with seasonality and different populations and with these mass extinctions going on. You know, the heating of the oceans that's probably going to be quite disruptive of the ocean, affecting the atmosphere, affecting other species down the way. I mean, we are going to be facing a lot of major effects on things that we've taken for granted. And it seems central to this is building these local, this local resilience. 
Yeah. And so I completely. Uh, I, and so, yes, I'm right there with you. And it's not just going to be the slowing because I've looked at that this uh, heating of the oceans and there's currents in like the Atlantic Ocean that keeps well, it affects the jet stream. So we're seeing the jet stream becoming wobbly um, and behaving in odd ways. But that, that change of the ocean is also going to affect, say, France, England. Those places are, that are uh, people, where people live now could be plunged into temperatures much colder. So we have uh, the unrest and things going on, wars in Europe, Middle East, and and it makes things very precarious. I see that we're in a very precarious, complex situation. And I know a lot of people want to say that technology will solve the problem. We see that uh, throughout history, technology is implemented and it does <clears throat> and can solve some problems and it creates others. Do we have the foresight as a species to identify what and, and will actually take the time? I don't think it's that we have a lack of foresight. I think it's a lack of will. We have, especially in the United States, this love for something new and glittery and glamorous and want to do away with, you know, leave the farm behind you know, the victory gardens and going back, but people wanted, they came back from wars and they wanted to leave the farms. It was hard work. We have better technology now that has been developed by farmers, whether that's like Elliot Coleman and his hoe or other, other types of things that make, and knowledge that make that easier and more product. And this is where small spaces Small space gardens are more productive than farms. So if we can find a way to integrate these things, but keep in mind that larger vision of what's going on in the world, in our country, and then bring that down to home in our state, bring that down into what's going on. Um, maybe there's needs to be, and I see that if you're looking at food, we need more of a collaboration with the county and maybe a commission of something set up that includes both county and city to know how are we going to feed the people? Because it's not just importing foods and getting them to food banks and taking the money and tossing it to corporations to bring in subpar food for our most vulnerable peoples, leaving them then in, in situations to where they may not get the health care they need. We could also look for other monies and get that, say, combine and things that make us uh, more resilient as a as not just the Bloomington community, but the larger Ellettsville, Steinsville, you know, all, all of us, we are connected.